How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sasha Podcast, episode 193. Oh, well done. For, for what? For nailing my intro? Yeah. That I've done 192 times before this? Yeah. Thank you. I, I hear the 193rd time is tough. Yes. So you got through it pretty... Yes. I mean, we're counting down until <laughs> I get an episode well. wrong again. How are you doing, Jake? Oh, goodness. I'm okay. Yeah? Actually, I will. No, I'm actually... I'm doing really well. I'm feeling a bit more relaxed. Yeah, cool. Things are, you know, happening, which is good. Absolutely. But, uh, including actually watching some stuff this week. Although, boy, I gotta say, I did say in last week's episode I was gonna do a bit of a Moby binge, watch some, you know, international films, some, you know, films with a lot of artistry. Mm-hmm. Can't say I did that this past week. I watched a lot of crap. <laughs> We're gonna get into that very soon. That's but, very exciting. Uh, but Zeke. Yes. Do you have any film trivia for the but, film of the week that we're doing? Yes, of course, the film of the week being Yamaguchi's Drive My Car. Brum, and brum. I'm going to talk about, well, the coast. Well, not really the co-star. One of, one of the cast, probably mm. a major cast member. Um, obviously, earlier into the film, we find out that our central protagonist can't drive the car, hence the name of the, mm. the film, at least. The person that's assigned as his chauffeur, Toko Muri. God, I'm sorry if I butcher these names in this episode. Um, yeah, well, that's really the actress, isn't it? Obviously, the actress playing the chauffeur mm. didn't actually drive in real life <laughs> prior, uh, and didn't even hold a driver's license when she was cast. So I personally can relate to that. <laughs> I thought that was an appropriate, uh, yeah, an appropriate fact for me to read out. So yeah, well, it's funny because I I also really like that fact so much. That's what I was gonna. That's actually what I was going to share. Oh. So you sniped me, mate. But that's oh. okay. Because I can talk about the film itself being based uh, on a story uh, entitled Men Without Women, which runs no more than 40 pages. So it's a bit of a short story, mm-hmm. which is kind of the polar opposite of what I thought the film was based on going in, because you see the, you know, based on a, in the opening credits. I was like, oh, it's based on a novel. Not necessarily. Despite the mm. very novelistic pacing of this film... And we'll yeah. get into that. But yeah, Zeke. Yes. This film is far too new to be on the 1100 films you must watch before you die poster behind you. But would you put this on your poster? Probably not. Mm. It's not a bad film. <laughs> it's not a bad film. No, it's really not. I mean, but as I was watching it, I was sort of decarp... decarp... My God, I'm tongue-tied. Yeah, breaking nice. down the film, <laughs> um, and while I was breaking down the, the film, I was finding, you know, other films, or at least, you know, and this is about, you know, when we talk about language association and stuff, it's sort mm-hmm. of like, okay, I can think of about three Western films I could break this odyssey of a film down to into three sort of films. Right. And all three of those films were better than the film I was watching. So. Interesting. Yeah. So, well, the 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 analogue that I definitely made to this film, because there's a lot of themes. There's a mm. lot of things sort of under the hood, no pun intended, in this film. I lied. That was very intended, that yeah. pun. But um, that being said, the one I sort of resonated with the most was very similar to what I resonated with when watching another Western film, specifically a Wes Anderson film. And uh, I think I'll elaborate a bit more later on, but I think that's cool. probably the primary reason why I wouldn't put it on my list either. But like I said, not not a commentary on 
the film at all, but more so just are the themes explored in this film the best way they could have been explored? And I think it'll be interesting to discuss this later in the show. For sure. Mm-hmm. But Jake, before we jump into that, mm. you've just been hyping us on some of the quality you've been watching. I did. Um, was there any quality that came out of the week, or is it just bad? Because I could start with my one good thing the, that I watched. The, qual- the only quality it came from was the Dodgeball rewatch. Okay. That we had as a group, which I only rewatched a year ago. It was episode 143, our Nitram discussion. So if you want to hear my thoughts on the Dodgeball rewatch, just listen to that. I have nothing you to say. Terrible episode to talk about Dodgeball. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a terrible episode to talk about some of the other films I'm going to talk about. But since we're on a good streak, and my good streak is very, very short, let's continue it with the one good thing you have watched in the last week. Yeah, so I, I sat down and obviously I've I've wrapped my final prack in the last week. So yeah. Um, now just got to write a gigantic paper on it. Um, so not quite halfway over the rainbow. Not quite. Uh, not quite at the other end with the pot of gold. But Somewhere near the over the rainbow. It's so funny because everyone's <laughs> like, "Oh, you're so happy," and you're like, "Yeah," but now you got to write this big thing. Anyway, it's sort of like one of those things where it's like, once upon a time, yeah, that would have been it. Sure. Whereas Nike, now they've added these extra steps in there, and you, you know. When you've been at university as long as I have, you, you are a bit fatigued by the whole experience. But the thing I managed to actually sit down and watch was mostly in the last oh, four or five days. I have watched the first... I mean, I've watched a couple of series. Uh, uh, I've been just sitting on Netflix watching different series of, of this, that, and others. So I've started uh, Keep Sweet, Pray, and uh, pray Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey, which is oh, about a, a gated... A <laughs> um, I might have mixed up which way it goes. I think it's keep, right. seek, pray, and obey. And it's basically just like the insight into a a wing of Christianity or Mormonism, more specifically in in Utah. And it's like this cult like behavior and how you know certain men exploit that religious system and that cult system to have a bunch of wives and stuff. It's just very ick. Mm. It's good and engaging. And the two episodes I watched of it. I've bought in. I'm yep. going to keep watching. But um, I'll probably go into that one a little bit more when I've completed the full limited series for that. I've watched the first two seasons, or there's only two seasons of it, of a sports sort of docu-series where it follows, uh, it's called Sunderland Till I Die, and it follows mm-hmm. the Sunderland Football Club in the 2018 and 19 season for season one, and then 1920 season for season two. How in the eighteen nineteen season they had just been relegated from the Premier League, which is the top league of uh, English football, down to uh, the the champions, and then at the end of the Champions League they get relegated to League One, and oh. then it's sort of, so it's kind of interesting because it's sort of in, in like the docu series it sort of encompasses Ted Lasso as a yep. <laughs> as a, but it's a real life. He's, he's in FIFA twenty three now. Yeah, comes out l- later this week. Um, and it's like, I think this came off the back of the, the Welcome to Wrexham, um, show that's sort of ongoing. I watched it and it, it apparently it didn't get a third season and it's kind of, a, it makes sense because they only actually just got back up to the Champions League as of this season. Right. So they would have sat there for another two seasons. So you probably would have, probably would have got pretty repetitive. I think, imagine it was a mixture of that and then COVID came in. So they stopped doing it. Um, but the two seasons they did make f- were fantastic. Great insight into how a football club works, how it sucks to be a manager of a club and 
they change ownerships over the course of the two seasons. So there's so many fast, multifaceted levels of, of behind the scenes stuff, and the and the access is is truly amazing. And you really do buy into. I have to. I was praised a lot at the time when it came out in like 2018, 19, mm-hmm. but to watch it and get that behind the scenes and to really buy into like wanting this club to be successful was really cool yeah. to see. And I really, I've talked about it with the football, with making your mark and how we really, we'd be hungered, hungered to have a second season of that. Um, and we always want to get more insight into how our, you know, our sport teams function but it's such a personal like area, and 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 this one didn't pull any punctures. Like in the first season, there's like off-field incidents, and they address them, and there's footage of them, and it's very interesting exploring that side, and then mm. the technicality side, how transfer windows work. It was the really it makes you want to just immediately go and watch a soccer game, like straight away, <laughs> get into uh, the vibe. But yeah, All that's the, the yeah. I powered through that. Powered nice. through the two seasons of that. Would hundred percent recommend. Um, what's oh, a, what is a Netflix Netflix yeah so that was really cool um yeah. other than that no not much um I'm trying to think I, I actually I stopped I sat and watched a bit of a section of of the film but it relates to the film of the week so I'm not gonna oh interesting um, just saying SBS mo- SBS on demand SBS movies they get they've got really good films Mm. playing right now so i'm intrigued by that so jake speaking of quality (laughs) hit me with quality okay so i didn't even hear about this film until very recently but in addition to the dodgeball rewatch a bunch of us watched a film called tiptoes have you ever heard of tiptoes no but would this fall into the drink to cringe category absolutely i mean it came out the same year as the room in 2003 it shot very much like the room where it's kind of got this Where'd you watch it? Um, Oh, Andy had it on DVD. Uh, He bought a DVD of it. Um, So I don't know where you could stream this, for example, but I'll set the picture for you. Stars Gary Oldman, Matthew McConaughey, Peter Dinklage, Kate Beckinsale, Patricia Arquette. That's a pretty good cast. You got a winner right there. Yeah. Best picture uh, nominee right there, I reckon. No... It's not the case. So the film, despite the good actors really trying to make this terribly offensive script work, um, I'm trying to figure out how to even describe this. So the film is about uh, Matthew McConaughey and Kate Beckinsale, and you know they're together, and she finds out she's pregnant. Now, we see Matthew McConaughey is a big advocate for this community of little people. And the whole film's about this and how everyone in his family besides him is a little person, including Gary Oldman. Yes, Gary Oldman is on his knees the entire film pretending to be a little person. Just to, just to give you a hint at what, what you're this dealing with. This film is movie. not available on any Australian streaming services, oh, which good, makes good, me good deeply saddened. <laughs> you might have to ask Andy for a copy on DVD. It might have even do wow. a Blu-ray. I've, I've... Yeah, you got the sc- screenshot of it. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> 1.4 on Letterboxd. Yeah, no, that that's fair enough. That might even be a little charitable, to be honest. Um, so yeah, the entire core drama of the film, which you know, it's only ninety minutes. There was like a two and a half hour cut that played at Sundance. That's a whole story in and of itself. Played at Sundance. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, the entire core drama of the story revolves around this couple whose unborn child might be a little person. That That's the whole story. And, um, yeah. Yeah. It's as it's as fantastic as you can imagine it, and it's like the the that idea in itself isn't the worst idea. I mean, I've definitely pitched to you a feature idea I've had that does revolve around a parent and their child who might share a disability with them. No, it's slightly different because of the, mm. the shared aspect of it, but there are ways to do it. For st- and I'm not even getting into the horrendous dialogue in this film and how offensive. Some of the wording is that they use. <laughs> so this was directed by Matthew Bright, and I have to emphasise mm. this was the last film he ever directed. <laughs> all three, all might have been three previous films, all other three films on his directorial uh, resume right. were all came before this film. Mm, so this must yeah. have been the. Well, I'm pretty sure he did it under a pseudo name. I think by by the time he saw the final cut, he was like, "I don't want my name attached to this." I'm not saying the two-and-a-half-hour version of this film is a masterpiece or even better than this. I'm, I'm very curious what it is <laughs> or if it is available. I feel like it might be. But, you know, without even getting into the dialogue, it's you can't structure a film like this where it's revolved around, uh, you know, parents who are worried about what might or might be, uh, might ensue for their child. It doesn't work when most of the film is before the child's even born. And... You know, to compare it structurally to a film that I would love to make in the future, which primarily takes place three years into the child's life with flashbacks to the adult's own childhood. And that was something I didn't even think about is, okay, well, if you're going to associate it with your family all being little people and you're worried about your child being a little person, why don't we flash back to that relationship? You know, it's... Anyway, you, you kind of have to see it to believe it. That That's what we're dealing with with Tiptoes here. Crazy movie. Now, the other one I saw... I did say wow. this last week, Zeke. I said there was a chance yeah. that I watched Jeepers Creepers Reborn. And gosh darn it, gosh tootin' darn howdy, I did. Weird, <laughs> weird sort of soft reboot of the franchise, kind of Halloween 2018-esque, mm. that sort of acknowledges the previous films as like, you know, like a fake film within the universe and within these characters. What film is this called? Jeepers Creepers. It's called Reborn. So it's the fourth one. I think it was meant to be the start of a new trilogy. I don't think they're going to take this very far. Okay. This film was horrible. And even my brother who loves Jeepers Creepers was like, yeah, that sucked. <laughs> and it's it, it kind of falls into those trappings of your stereotypical horror film where nothing makes sense. The characters are acting completely irrational. There was some honest-to-God like a promising setup with two, the two leads mm. because you have the horror geek who's like obsessed with the iconography and conspiracy theory that that comes with the creeper and and these horror characters and he's dragging his human bio girlfriend uh, a student of human bio girlfriend to this festival and she's obviously a lot more pessimistic about the whole thing doesn't believe in in this and I thought it'd be kind of clever since she is the target of sort of the evil doing in the film that as she slowly becomes to realize that the horror is real, that maybe the boyfriend doesn't want A, and he's like, oh, I actually don't really believe in this stuff. I'm just a fan of it. That could have been cool. Of mm. course, the film doesn't touch anywhere near that. It spends a lot more time on him wanting to propose to her, which has nothing to do with the story. The fact that she's pregnant and doesn't know how to tell him, which almost has nothing to do with the story. They sort of hint at this idea that the the creeper is aging and old and decrepit, but that's it. 
and I kind of have to make the connection in my own head that maybe he's attracted or his target is this girl who's pregnant with a child that maybe he wants to I don't like become his offspring I don't know the film doesn't try any of this I'm trying very hard to make anything in this movie that happens make sense <laughs> and then you got you know the fake fog and fire that they've comped into the film so why does he look like a goblin well, I think he's like a creature that every 23 years has to like feast on humans. Okay. And again, it's like a lot of these things were either established in the previous film or when I look at characters in this film that are sort of doing things that aid the monster, they don't do anything to explain why they're doing it. I remember talking to my brother and he had a theory that, oh, well, maybe they're doing it so they themselves don't get eaten. So they're kind of getting other people to go to this horror festival and fall into a trap where they do get mm-hmm. eaten by the creeper. But again, the film doesn't do any of that. We just kind of assume that that's kind of what these characters' motivations are. The film doesn't help at all to do that. But yeah, um, terrible VFX. I could tell when they were walking through the forest, the, the trees in the foreground were like comped in. There's like terribly um, sort of layered in tree foreground shot, which I'm like, mm. why would you even bother? It just looks terrible. Like, this is... Some of the effects in here are, like, straight up bird... What is it called? Birdemic? But what's the movie called? Birdemic. Birdemic. The greatest movie Shark, of all time. Sharknado. Sharknado. Like, <laughs> like, that level of horror camp VFX. It just looks atrocious. Um, yeah, he looks like a... He looks like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer villain <laughs> for an episode. <laughs> well, the original Jeepers Creepers... It's been a long time since I've seen it. But there's some great stuff in that film. The opening scene is just so engrossing where they're getting chased by you know the big truck mm. and then they see them throwing the dead body in the tunnel when they're sort of debating whether to go back and investigate and like it's all great stuff it's kind of like Jewel with Steven Spielberg in terms of the truck being the villain until you realise it's this big creepy monster with wings um, so this film is he doesn't have any of the mystery aspect of it but then what it does at the start is try and replicate that opening scene but just do it much more horribly yeah and I think this is a trapping of a lot of horror films these days, is unlike older horror films, the, the, the telegraphing of the horror aspect of the film is just so not subtle anymore. Like, when the original characters in Jeepers Creepers see this truck sort of, like, not not tail... Yeah, tailgate them and then sort of cut them off the road, they're like, oh, well, that guy's an asshole. They don't immediately, like, oh, my God, this is horrible, and he's going to kill us. Ah! Like, there's just no telegraphing anymore. Yeah. There's no, like time for the the script to allow the characters to realize they're in a horror film they just seem to immediately know and i don't know i'm gonna stop because i don't like just whinging about terrible movies i just happen to watch two really bad ones in one week i will say though to make up for it yes i will because we we did very much poo poo in the uncharted movie that came out earlier we did a whole podcast on it i have to say this because to make up for that why do you have to make up for that? I I know I'm saying like I just I feel bad crapping on things even though they're crap, and I will say that new Last of Us trailer they just dropped to HBO they did a full you know ninety second yeah. trailer. I formally forgive Sony for what they did to the Uncharted movie because that trailer looks mint, that looks incredible. Well, I hope the trailer lives up to it. Oh, I I have a good feel. Uh, to be fair, yeah, you got the guy from Chernobyl who's like kind of the main showrunner. Which is, okay. that's fantastic. So he's going to nail the tone, and the trailer nails the tone. The set dressing's all there. I think Pedro Pascal looks, we haven't seen much of it, but every little bit. I know I made fun of the line delivery in the previous teaser, but just seeing glimpses of him in this trailer, I was like, okay, I see what he's going for. This this clicks. 
So I think the Uncharted movie never, for not one second, did that look good, ever. Mm. So I'm much more optimistic about this trailer. But yeah, dramas. Do you have anything to add in careers? Yeah, well, I got a got a few things. I was showing you off my Insta three sixty one RS one inch. I forget the name sometimes. Yeah. Um, that my boss lent me for the next few weeks. I'm gonna play it's very with that. spicy, very spicy three sixty camera, which is cool. And um, in terms of skin and blister news, we finally, after many many weeks, finally sort of finished our shot list. Seventy shots. It's a very very exciting, very commendable number. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, I f- I feel like. That's a good number to arrive at. And it's not like we purposely tried to make it super condensed. I mean, just the sort of the pacing we're going for worked for that. But also for a film with this much technical on-set limitations, mm-hmm. night shoots, practical rain, driving scenes, you don't want to be trying to do 200 shots within those yeah. <laughs> limitations. So, um, But I'm sure people will hear more about that in the near future. No dramas. Well, I guess it's time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? Let's begin the show, Zeke. We're watching Drive My Car.今回は私たちの決まりでドライバーを用意します。というと彼女です。渡利美咲です。僕はまだドライバーを君に頼むことにどうしてない。私が若い女だからですか。一ヶ月半の稽古と二週間の本番です。ずるい人だ。はい、と
It's a lot more going on that does speak to its um, novelistic pace that speaks to the three-hour runtime, <laughs> which, like you said, includes a 40-minute prologue, essentially. Yeah, and, um, you know, I'm trying not to get confused... Um, not confused. I'm, I'm trying not to have my opinion swayed by what I expected it to be going in. I literally just mentioned Pieces of a Woman, and that's a film where I thought the prologue would be the whole film in terms of its pacing, and it didn't. And I was like, hmm, that disappoints me. And this film's certainly not a disappointment. It does some wonderful film things in terms of filmmaking, storytelling, and the themes that are explored. But I don't know. Well, I, see, what is this film about specifically what is this film about you reckon i think it to me i mean it, it's heavily underpinned by um sort of artistic vision really mm. i think that's a i i could compare it to like i said there are there are probably two or three films while watching it that stuck with me that we have to endure a sense of, of longing and pain to produce the strongest pieces of, of work and art. Um, I mean, and the film I was talking about was with Whiplash, but that's very um, apparent and in your face, that mm, theme. It's, sure. it's, it's very on on the surface and interpretable, but then a lot of, like, this is the difference between Western cinema and then you know, foreign cinema. I think foreign cinema definitely subverts more of its themes and ideas. Um, you know, every time we've talked about a film from sort of the, you know, the the um, the Asia block mm. of, of countries, whether that's, you know, Japanese, Korean, uh, Chinese, and, um, you know, that sort of, or Hong Kong, mm. um, all of the themes seemed a little bit more uh, difficult to find or difficult to peg as, as quickly and as easily. Sure. I think this film has moments where it's clearly like, oh, well, we're exploring sort of the universal, like the universality of good storytelling. Mm. And, you know, for, from this, this director that relies on a, on a, a bi or a multilingual approach to theatre productions where he's happy to have people of different uh, languages um, uh, languages or even special needs mm. um, to perform in his plays. And I found that, that in itself was a really interesting concept that's so... It's there and it's apparent, mm. but it's not... not the, the, obviously, it's not the central point of the narrative... And I was like, man, that would have been a really cool story to just explore in itself. <laughs> like, you know, you've got like this huge ensemble cast of, mm. of different nationalities all speaking different languages and they're all having to communicate solely through body language and knowing cues. And that's like why he has such a meticulous way of reading through scripts and such. Mm. And I find that's really cool. Yeah, some of the other films I think of that come to mind, you've got The Translators, which is about a, a group of, well, translators translating a book so they all come from different nationalities and they're all writing the different language versions of mm -hmm. that same book um and that sort of touches on that communication barrier which i think is interesting um what's the other film that i'm thinking of well the reason i mentioned wes anderson earlier because that that's more directly about you're right storytelling and i mean that film's about journalism 
but more so how stories and texts come together and recontextualized over time and interpreted differently. And I mean, that's really the big thing about this film, outside of grief and loss and yeah. and all Self of those yeah, and elements. forgiveness, like self forgiveness. Yeah, um, um, I think that's all laid under this idea of of text and storytelling. I specifically labeled the the line of dialogue: yield the text, listen and respond to the text, and really how characters use storytelling and text. And you know, no matter how old or new they are, there could be you know che- a text that Chekhov wrote you know many 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 years ago. Or there could be the you know the fake characters that these characters in this story are coming up with, you know as as they go and mm. sort of speaking out loud. What if this character's like this? What if this story unfolds this way? And ultimately, it's about yeah characters understanding each other through that vessel of storytelling, despite the communication barriers of like you know sign language versus the spoken word, or just different languages in general, or the expressions that we can have in our faces while talking. I think. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but that's why I love the blocking so much of having these two characters in a car that are meant to bond over this three-hour journey. Um, probably ends up being more like a two-hour journey because we don't even meet this character until the hour mark. Mm-hmm. But having them initially communicate in different sides of the car, one in the back seat, one in the front seat, they can't see each other's faces. Yeah. And it takes a long time for them to even converse for a lot of that film. So I think, I think that's generally where the film... At least by the end of the journey, that's kind of what I cemented it. It's about, you yeah. know, it really is about a lot of things. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where, you know, it's such a long film, and you could, you know, you could easily walk away and go, "Oh, I don't think that much happened. It just felt like someone died and someone got over someone." <laughs> and that's true, mm. but then it's like it. It's interesting. Even the the motif of using cars to communicate artistic visions or confet like the the car is often the vessel of action in this in this film, mm. whether it's um, dialogue between you know um, God I'm gonna have to get the names up otherwise you I'm... got Yusuke and well, uh, Misaki you know, who and were we... sort of the two characters were following in most car rides. Yeah, and and those two obviously have the most dialogue, but they're both and they're both actually gradually going through the same sort of grief and mm. and and you know for Mizaki it's a relationship with her parents or a mother in particular she's talking about a lot and how she sort of holds that over her head and has has you know this scar on her face that she could get removed, which mm. obviously is a very simple message at the end of the film when it is removed. It's that clear symbolic messaging there mm. and you know you got Yusuke who's you know sort of getting over losing this um person who you know he found himself in a in a life of, of creative control mm. and the death of um Otto his wife is sort of the thing that sets sets him off balance and it's about finding that that artistic balance again um you know the fact that he can't play the 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 lead role, mm. um, or that he refuses to play the lead role because he he can't pull himself back out of that because of all of the the emotion that he's got really built up outside of the role, and mm. he sort of goes, "Oh, I can't do it because the role's too heavy for me." But it's clear it's the grief that he's carrying in life that he'll put into a convincing performance. But mm. yeah, and we see that that's very simple cause and effect. It's showed. When after just a few weeks after Otto's died, he has to go out and perform, and he 
can't cope, really. Mm. Um, and I love that the other two performers, they're so committed to the text and the piece and performing that piece, they don't really go and check up on him. Yeah. They might not, like, well, we got to, you know, the, the show must go on in a way. Yeah. And I thought that was a nice little touch. And I, I think it's that control and routine. It's like we're misdirected very early on when we, we see, oh, well, Otto's having an affair with. Uh, boy. Uh, the young man. Is it, Ko- is it Koji? K O J I. I'm going to call him Koji. Yeah, we'll go with Koji. <laughs> Who really does become sort of the younger surrogate character that our protagonist is trying to shell off his, not necessarily his guild, but you know, if it, if this character that everyone expects him to play, but he do, he can't play this character, he sort of targets Koji as the one of I'm going to inflict all of this onto him, sort of this mm. younger counterpart. That they do have that that weird cosmic connection because they both had a connection to Otto. One was obviously married. One was uh, was a little more of a passive experience. But nevertheless, he may have still loved her just as much. And that becomes a huge part of this film is how much do people know each other? And is it an impossibility to know everything about one person? I don't mm. want to get too into my highlight scene later, but it's an interesting thread. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's... That's sort of what I got out of you know sort of watching was there's a lot going on but it is i think it's great the way you've sort of summated it with oh it's about text and Mm -hmm. and and our readings of text and our ways what we bring into a text what we can give to a performance and and it's and that multi-layered sort of consideration there and you know you've got like you said koji who's who's being assigned this role that is generally cast as an older generate like an older Mm -hmm. person and he doesn't feel like he's up to that role and we're sort of trying to get an understanding of of whether you know Yusuke is 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 sort of doing this to kind of do a, a weird J.K. Simmons sort of whiplash effect, where <laughs> sort of pulling the the rug from under him and and setting him up to fail. But it never comes to that. It's never about that. And no, well, so much of the tension between their relationship, especially before that big scene they share in the car is when is that other shoe going to drop where he's going to reveal that I know you slept with my wife? Yeah. <laughs> We're kind of waiting for that shoe to drop and there seems to be a lot more going on under the... um under the I'm going to keep saying under the hood of the car. <laughs> but I think the other thing that's interesting, especially about the way we interpret and communicate text, is how we almost, as as humans, we almost sort of shield ourselves not just away from the text, the way mm. that um, Yusuke, Yusuke, Yusuke is um, avoiding playing this role, but then you also see the relationship he had with Otto and that they're constantly just bouncing ideas off each other and describing characters and metaphors and scenery and, you know, in such detail. And, and you know, she's the opening scene, she's nude and expressing these ideas and just flowing out of her, like word vomit almost. Um, there's a comfortability in living in, in the 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 fake world that they're creating. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is through text. And I think, well, text isn't the spoken language. And he's obviously listening to her voice over and over again, this repetition of her voice coming out of the car radio that he almost can't escape from. I mean, we use that almost to track the relationship between him and Misaki mm-hmm. as how much does he ignore to listen to the tape versus just listening to her. Yeah. But when it comes comes back to Otto the words that are coming out of her mouth does not correlate with the actions that her body is participating in. 
And I made the joke. I was like, sure, boy, is a lot of sex in the, <laughs> in the first half hour of this film. And obviously it becomes a lot more apparent that that was almost her way of... Like a creative outlet. Exactly, exactly. And and I think he sort of taps into the pain aspect too. Mm. Um, it's an interesting um, sort of artistic dynamic because, you know, you they've been married and... and it's so interesting when, you know, we get to that sort of back end of the film and we, we get these reveals that this is mm. not the first time this has happened and he knows that she loves him until, you know, and it only takes um, Ko- Koji to put that sort of seed of doubt in and it's like, well, right. like she told me more of the story and that's sort of a weird inferral that, <laughs> oh, maybe she was just... And it, it actually takes... Um, God, what's the chauffeur's name? God. I should just permanently leave my phone over. Masaki. Masaki, yeah. It takes her to be like, maybe she's just doing these things because she's just doing these things. Right. And it's got nothing to do with a creative outlet or... So there's a lot of... There's a lot of... Every time you feel like you're kind of fully getting the message and the dynamics of characters, they sort of do uh, flip it on on you. And um, this film obviously puts great emphasis on relationships and how people work within each other and and how that sort of channels into a, an artistic outlet. I mm. find that very interesting. Yeah, well, even even to contrast, you know, the, the sexual nature of how, the, you know, this is how she comes up with her ideas and her stories, it's almost sort of the contrast of the ending when Masaki is throwing flowers at the destroyed home mm. and talking about her mother while doing that. And it's like, that's... Those words and then those... Um, I guess actions of her throwing the flowers; those are mu- much more heavily correlated than anything that Otto did at the start of the mm. film. And I just, I, I don't know if that says much more about the relationships these characters have. I mean, like you said, there's a lot more going on in terms of understanding each other and what Koji brings up in the car. But I did think that was an interesting um, juxtaposition. If I was going to look at the start mm. of the film and the end of the film, and what did they do differently? And I think that's definitely one that she's not projecting her thoughts and feelings onto a made-up character or scenario mm. that she's writing for a potential TV show or stage play. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it, and it was... It was it, and like I said, when I when I bring it back to its, its driving really is the, the, the piece of moving plot forward, moving mm. character relations forward. It's this vessel of confessions and revelations and... The moments in between when characters aren't in cars mm. are the moments where we really just it becomes a becomes the place of work. Really, that's the only time we ever really escape the car. Mm. Is we're developing the film. We're in the screenwriter. We're in the writers' room, re- you know, reading the screenplays, or we're on the stage or and there's only one time I think where we get a little bit of insight but it's still a it's like a going to a cast dinner when they go and right. have dinner with with um one of the cast members and we find mm-hmm. out oh well one of the organizers of, the, of this event is his wife is is the one that is hearing impaired and mm-hmm. is using uh Korean sign language which was which is really cool because it you know it it was interesting that so every time we leave sort of that realm, I find, the, with exception to the relationship that Masaki and, and 
Yusuke have. Mm. They're the only ones who ever go anywhere outside of the theatre production world, really. Mm. Um, where they go mm. on and have stoic confessionals, really. Mm. Um, well, yeah, because like you said, they're, they're the two... Right, I mean, other characters are having their own issues and, and pain and suffering, and but it's really those two that have such a shared connection. Because, yeah, they're spending the physical time in the car, but then they're both the ones who have lost someone, whether it be a wife or a mother... And then there's that extra layer of connectivity because she's 23, the age that his daughter would have been if she hadn't died. Um, which, that was that would have been a while ago. Bloody hell. It's very lost in translation, isn't it? The dynamic. <laughs> it's... Yeah. Well, since we're talking a bit about the car, first off, 87 Saab 900 Turbo. Just an, a beautiful car. And I know it's like part of it is keeping the red very vibrant, but like just a little car going down the freeway. Yeah. It's, I love the shots, the bird's eye track mm, shots. These big pans across the freeways. And Japan sometimes... is such a beautiful place to mm. shoot. Like, I found it interesting because it's obviously like you always ask yourself, it's like, oh, well, then why are we set in this particular city? Like, and it was interesting that it was mentally, it was meant to be shot in South Korea and they moved it to Hiroshima because of COVID. Oh, and that's interesting. And I, I always think I'm like, well, Hiroshima, that's such a, from a Western audience point of view, that's such an iconic, like, mm. icon, like we recognize that. If it's not Tokyo, it's like Hiroshima. Like Even just like the shot of him at the hotel at the start of the film, it's like, oh yeah, this is meant to be very recognizable iconography. And I'm like, why are we doing this in, in Hiroshima? Because I'm thinking, surely we're going to have some, but then sometimes it's more just about, well, this, this is just a really interesting sort of location mm. to shoot in and i think it's it's also just a practical thing because there's artists and actors working on this two-month stage production thing yeah yeah it's probably just a practical reason as well yeah to do with that yeah i mean we're always going to take our we're always going to bring our own information into it when we're watching something and there is a i guess there's a beauty of what we're exploring the intricacies of, of art in a place that was you know, so iconic in, in human history, in 20th century mm. history too. and um, Even even just subtle things in terms of like this film being made with the international audience in mind of, you know, when, when we have Otto's, I wouldn't call it a funeral, but that service after she's passed away. Like, I love that they established that location earlier when they're mourning their daughter. Yeah. And it's like just little things like that, just so the international audience who maybe aren't familiar with the rituals or the, or the location... Like can put two and two together. Like, oh, okay. There's I see some what's very happened. like simple storytelling with all, like non simple non dialogue storytelling. There's so much cause and effect in this film. Mm. Like nearly everything has a breadcrumb, like an obvious breadcrumb beforehand. You know whether it's, you know it's whether it's that particular example mm. or it's like the the photography with um ah oh, yeah Koji's Koji's character outright. <laughs> You know, and they do a rule of three with that, where it's like yeah. the one time when someone's not there to interfere, and, and sure enough, that leads to sort of a, a snapping, a breaking point. Yeah. I can't say I really understand it, apart from him just being a young, hot-headed person. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting how subtle that is, because I, I didn't pick up on the fact that he lost a bunch of work for, I, I guess, sexual assaulting a minor, was that it, or something to yeah. do with that? that they mentioned on the TV, and that's like the last time we actually see him is in a little box on the TV when they're on the on the ferry. 
and I, I was I meant to catch that earlier because I feel like that's the first time we actually got that clarified, and maybe that's why he's just so on edge about that bad publicity that any photos, he just jumps, he snaps at it. Yeah. So it's interesting they kind of held that information until later in the film. I could be stupid and didn't pick up on it earlier, but that's the vibe I got. Some of the other things in three that, hours we all miss. <laughs> well, even even some of the other. Not plans and payoffs, but so much just, just clever ways of using the camera to change things up. Mm-hmm. And I love that initially when he's driving to you know meet the people involved in producing this play, we get this shot in the back seat and we get to see his eyes through the rearview mirror. You know, it's like, okay, a pretty standard shot in the back seat as we're watching him drive. But what we don't realize is that once he has a driver and now he's in the back seat, that shot turns into a POV. I was like, that's pretty clever. Just very subtly using the same angle, but to convey a different meaning mm-hmm. to the shot. A lot of clever little things. And I mean, like that. then that comes back to my like cre- control on life, creative control mm. um, that Yusuke is going through, and and Otto's death is is the thing that puts that out of balance. You know, he loses his ability, he loses his ritual of driving, and you know, and he feels like that it won't be the same, and only after building up. Uh, a sense of trust with Mis- Misaki. I mean, do we start to see that routine? I honestly thought it would get to a point where she would just know the words and start speaking. That was my like. Ah, oh, that's interesting. The, yeah, the script words, but it never gets to that point. In fact, it becomes just a more personable relationship rather than a. I um, wonder. I wonder if part of that reasoning because it's obviously a big deal at the end when he is finally performing that role and they're doing the stage play and the and the confidence of the one of the final shots when it's uh, Lee Yuna who's of course doing the sign language at the end and they it's sort of like a box within a box the way mm. she's wrapping her arms around him and sign language this big monologue um, but then it cuts to her in the audience and I, is that part of the reason why that's such an important shot is because she's so moved by the performance and the reenacting of those words that she's otherwise heard a million times mm. in the car that's I only just kind of put two and two together there yeah so thank you, Zeke. <laughs> it's really cool. I mean, admittedly, it's like I think one of the biggest strengths of this film is is sort of just its ability to really put together this, this pretty simple story about grieving and and stuff. And, sure. Yeah. And but into weaving it with we watch this production get put together. Mm. Like we watch from the auditions all the way to opening night. And mm. I think that that's really interesting because I'm sitting there going, Oh, this is really cool. It's like the, the bird man behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. But that was so obviously it was there for, it was constant stimulation and stuff. And so no, this bird is man's the- about energy and, and tension and fear about getting it right on that first go. And this film is much more carefully paced and we're just going to ease into because they've got two months to just ease into this performance. Learn the words, learn it right before you perform those words. You know, let's do a rehearsal in the park. Now we're going to do our costume rehearsal. Yeah, Spending two days to decide how to recast Koji. There's only very, there's only a very small power dynamic issue in this film versus something like Whiplash where it's like that's the, the centerpiece mm. rather than them putting together the performances and stuff, like the music and stuff. It's very clearly a mentor-student sort of artistic vision who's, like, how to get the best out of someone through basically just abusing them. Mm. (laughs) Um, And I know there's way more substance to Whiplash than just that, but it's like this one is... I mean, Yusuke is met with very little resistance from his cast. There's only Mm. one time when they're questioning about the script and then he's 
where after they try it and then they both go, oh, we get the method mm-hmm. um, that he's going for. He's not met with any other um, resistance, really. From, yeah. Like, Koji's just sort of a, a young hothead. His issues don't lie in the production or even Yusuke as a mentor. No, as an actor, he's very respectful, listening, apologetic when he's late. Yeah. But you're right, it's sort of the issues that come outside of that. So it's cool, because then it's like, okay, well, the challenges aren't the same petty sort of Western ideas that we constantly... The the problem isn't in the production itself. Mm. It's in the man driving the ship and his mental and what he's bringing to work and what he's not bringing to work and how he's managing to... He's basically in two minds. And Mm. when these two things intersect is when we really start to see the magic of the production coming out, which does lean in a little bit to my highlight scene. So, Oh, okay. um, well, yeah, that could be a. Is there a any good... music in this film? Very I've like non-diegetic, non-diegetic music. That is a good pickup. I don't think there is. I don't think there. I can't think of a single scene. I I could be wrong. Yeah, and it's a three-hour film, so there's a lot of scenes to remember. But I think you might be right because it does feel like a very quiet, somber film. There's yeah. a lot of reflection going on amongst the characters. Um, even diegetic film, I can't even think of that many examples yeah. at all. Maybe when they're in the bar, there's some music in the background, or obviously they're listening to the vinyl and it starts to stuff up, so Otto takes it off. Mm-hmm. So there's a few examples of diegetic music, but I think you're right. Otherwise, there's nothing. Yeah. Which, yeah, Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I guess before we go into the highlight scenes, because I don't think this would be either of our highlight scenes, but let's talk about the final scene in where it does a bit of a time jump. And I think there are sort of theories about the time jump. I think it's an additional two years after the play has commenced, I guess, in 2019. Yeah, it's got a real pan- pandemic. Well, it jumps into COVID. It's my, just my straight up COVID. My insinuation is COVID, <laughs> yeah, because it's like we've gone from no one wearing masks to everyone wearing masks. Yeah. So, yeah, I would assume it's, yeah, 2020, 2021, right? It was very jarring because obviously the film was shot after COVID it began, but they have such a long prologue and such a short epilogue. Well, you spent you spent two yeah you spent two hours fifty five minutes being immersed in this story that's been crafted for you, and all of a sudden the real world you know COVID iconography just hits you across the mm-hmm. face. It's a little like Black Klansman in a way, obviously not to the same you know effect. Yeah, and it's a, it, obviously it it's a very neutral. I mean, it's once again it comes back to that power of still image or the power of um how much iconography, like how much visual storytelling is, is done in this film. And, mm. you know, we could talk about things like Campion's Power of the Dog and how much that does a very similar thing where it's putting so much emphasis on visual storytelling. Mm. And it's like in this, we get all the information without her really speaking to yeah. speaking to anyone of, of importance. I mean, part of the reason it hits you like a brick is not only because of the, the jarring time jump and like, oh, but also like, oh my God, I've experienced this. And we've just witnessed three hours of characters dealing with their own trauma and pain. And, and we didn't mention this yet, but I think there's a, a little sliver of survivor's guilt in this film. And I think this that's still present for her when she seems to have inherited his car. And it's like, did he die of COVID? Is that what the ending's sort of inferring? She's also got the dog, which, which that wasn't goes against. Dog. Yeah, and it also goes against what he was very like clean car sort of person whereas she's mm. got this dog in this car so she's very much made the car her own space sure yeah but to go into that survivor's guilt it's like oh my god that's even more pain and misery and suffering that we've that's happened off screen and we can associate it through covid 
I don't think either of us have lost anyone we personally know to yeah, COVID. Um, it's interesting. But, I just saw it as he he be, you know bequeathed to the car and moved on. The car was yeah. a symbol of oh that could of also his, be his it. ties to Otto. But no, you're just as fair to say that that it's a very open ending. What what was the fate of Yusuke? I mean, we don't mm. know. I mean, we don't ever see him again. And but the, the I think the at its core the the epilogue's trying to say is well. We deal with our grief, and then life keeps going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, she keeps driving that car. because yeah, she doesn't have the scar on her face anymore. Mm. She's clearly gotten surgery to, like she initially talked about, to have that uh, almost completely removed. And then, yeah, and life just keeps moving. We just keep driving that car. Yeah. Life no, is the, a highway, the, to, <laughs> quote, is a to quote Rascal an, Another Another red car movie. <laughs> it's basically life Ka-chow. is a highway. Ka-chow. Um, this is basically just Pixar's cars. Yeah, it is. Um, life is a highway. Um, <laughs> so, Jake, speaking of highways, what was your highlight scene? Um, what I was hint- your highway scene? My highway scene <laughs> of them driving on the highway. I hinted at it before, but it has to be when Koji tells the remainder of the story of the girl in the crush's bedroom and that the whole elongated thing of the person that walked in is actually uh, a robber or, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, like a robber. And she ends up killing him in self-defense, and that goes on to this guilt she develops, and she doesn't notice her crush changed his behavior at all, despite knowing there was a dead body in his room. And what's interesting is that listening to so many of the monologues that were obviously from Chekhov's original piece or the play, or the stuff that the characters made up on their own, there was very few that I was paying attention closely to the text, because I thought it was the film's more about what it means for those characters to be coming up with these stories or relating to these texts. But that was the one time, and granted for the same reason, I was so invested in what he was saying because, first off, his performance, Masaki Okoda, holy shit, that was a performance. Even just like the his the mm. his eyes that are fixated on him and like the tears that are slowly coming down. I don't think they quite stream down his face, but just again the confidence of the film to have these gigantic long takes on this monologue as he's telling the story. But not only was I invested in the story, I was invested in what that story meant for Otto and why did Otto come up with the story? Why is this the one she sort of uh, startled on or eventually came up with? And why does only Koji know and not her husband? I I was just so transfixed by that entire scene. It's a good scene. scene. It's it. And it, I think, to its credit, mm. it, one of the biggest strengths of this film is its dialogue is always poignant, engaging, and, and keeps you wanting to be in the scene. Mm. Especially when a lot of the time it is as simple as shot reverse shot. It's a very dialogue driven piece. Mm. So to have such engaging scenes in such a compact space. Yeah. Where the two characters are sitting in a in a small red car mm. and we're not even going. One's not in the front, one's in the back, they're both just in the back together. Yeah, and we actually right. don't cut to mm. Masaki at all in that scene, which I find particularly interesting because it's so clearly about what's mm. happening in the back. Yeah, I think I think the one cut I remember is before he starts telling that specific story, but I think when he mentions the daughter being 23, or would have been 23, we do get a rearview mirror shot of her, like, yeah. darting her eyes, but that's before that story, to be fair. And shout out to the fact that this all happens right after the scene where Koji walks out of frame to chase the kid who was taking photos, and the fact that you can... Pl- not only is that, like, a very clever way of blocking that scene, where you don't see what's happened, he comes back in the frame... But the fact that the following scene is so 
transfixing, you completely forget about that. And it's a surprise when he does get arrested on stage. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh my god, I completely forgot you beat the crap out of someone. <laughs> Good scene, that arrest scene too. Yeah. Ah, oh, fantastic. And to the point I made about the blocking earlier where they're, they're obviously um, one's in the front, one's in the back, so they're not looking at each other during the most of the conversation they have while driving. It is after that scene that he actually moves into the front seat with her. And I think that's around the time when they have the cigarettes off the, the rooftop thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, just a fantastic scene. And everything prior and after it is just fantastic as well. It's a great iconic shot, that one. With mm. the cigarette down. Oh, definitely. Beats the perks of being a Warflower heroes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't. Perks, but that's a great film. That's a great, a great shot too. What about you? What's your highlight scene? I'm actually going to pick a scene that... You know, it's it's a really beautiful scene. And mm-hmm. what I think I, I like about it is it's sort of really... You really get an understanding of, you know, like, Yusuke as a as a creative and an, an auteur, like his character himself, mm-hmm. who is an auteur within an auteur's film, so a bit of meta-auteurness, <laughs> um, you know, for, for Hamaguchi in himself. But what's really interesting is exploring his artist methodology and... Particularly the scene between uh, Sonia Wan and Park Yurim in mm. the park. Ah, uh, um, yeah. yeah park where they go out stuff. and they sort of do an outside workshop and it's this, it's the first time they leave the, the rider block room and they move into this naturalistic setting mm. in front of an audience of just the cast and Masaki. And this is another one of those sort of uh, relationship building blocks for Yusuke and Masaki. Because Masaki, after following this scene, goes, oh, thank you for bringing me along. And it's the mm. first time we really tap... We actually start to see an emotional... Her open up a little bit emotionally. She's become... She was very stoic to this point. She's just doing the job as a chauffeur. Very introverted. Dressed and all raggy beforehand. <laughs> even to an extent, we actually start to see a bit more emotion out of Yusuke. Because, you know, at this point, we've seen his wife cheat on him. And not gotten much, much emotion out of him. Very limited emotion. Mm. Bit of shock. And then he, he Skype calls her later that night, pretending he's somewhere else. See her die. Don't see a lot of emotion out of that. Yet this performance brings him to tears. Mm-hmm. Almost like he allows... This is the only place he allows emotional outlet at yeah. this point. And it's this beautiful scene between these two actors who are part of this cast. Obviously, one of them is um, playing a, a person hearing impaired and communicating solely through Korean sign language. And it's this beautifully shot scene where it moves and rotates. And I just think it's a beautiful use of setting that elicits emotional response. And you completely buy it. It's another one of those dialogue-driven scenes that you completely just get lost in. Mm. You forget you're watching a theatre production mm. and you feel like you're watching just a scene from a, a movie or a conversation in real life. Mm. And you forget that this is a... a you know, based off check, you know, check off story, which is like hundreds of years old, <laughs> and you're blown away because it's like for someone who's not a big fan of Shakespearean theatre, right? That's hundreds of years old and can never really buy into it. To then watch this, obviously, this 21st century impression of a, of a script that a screenplay that's hundreds of years old or really old is really cool. And I just find that that scene is right at the mid. I think roughly around the midpoint. Yeah, I'd say it's around the middle point. And and even like the the visual of it, it's so different from everything we've seen before. Where now we're sort of in this foresty, sort of public, beautifully lit area. While prior to that, it's a lot more cityscape yeah, stuff, interiors, reading, uh, audition. Probably rooms. say it's the only time we really showcase like Hiroshima outside of those exterior car shots. Mm. 
for its sort of naturalistic beauty. And it's still in a man-made park, so it's, sure. it's still interesting that it feels like it's this urban drama that takes place in such a scenic location with these giant winding roads and these giant mountains. It's such an interesting location. Yeah. But there's there's still that element of universality to it too yeah. because like even even just two days ago, or was it yesterday, I, w- I was walking by Hyde Park, which is obviously just in Perth, and I, I saw a group of people, I don't know what sort of performance they were doing. Could have been some D&D thing or, you know, cosplay, LARPing, whatever it was, but it's like, I mean, there's a universality that are people performing in public. Yeah. And just out about in the park or by the street. It's really nice. Beautiful. Drive My Car is currently available on stand. Speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms this week? Not a lot. You got Hocus Pocus 2 coming to Disney Plus. Mm. That's exciting. And Jeepers even more. Creepers. Je- yeah, Jeepers Creepers Hocus Pocus. And you've also got the 25th anniversary of the original Hocus Pocus. So that's all going to Disney Plus. You've got the greatest beer run ever on Apple TV Plus, which sees John Chickle Donahue, played by Zac Efron, leave New York to track down his army buddies in Vietnam to share a beer, but is instead confronted with the horrors of war. Hmm. That took a turn. That takes a t- good beer run. <laughs> the greatest beer run ever. Yeah, that's that sounds pretty great. Interesting use of the word great. It also stars Russell Crowe, Bill Murray, and Viggo Mortensen. So that, that's a what good a cast m- right there. What a mix. I know. Hopefully it's not like tiptoes. <laughs> I highly doubt it. Coming to Netflix as well, you got Blonde, which stars Ana Diamez as the biggest star in the world, Marilyn Monroe, in this very divisive look at her rise and fame. Um, yeah, this film, I don't know what the hell <laughs> is the deal with it. I've heard some things about it, and I'm like, that sounds absolutely bonkers. But also, I'm excited to see her play Ana Diamas. But it also just sounds like hardcore porno for two and a half hours. I don't know what to make of this film. Yeah, it sounds hectic. I, I mean, I'm very, very curious. Curious how it does in the award season. But... It's finally coming to Netflix. It didn't do a limited release, I don't think. I had it must have had like a Venice premiere, but then then nothing. Very interesting. However, Wild. I'm actually more excited for this other Netflix film, Eat the Rich: The GameStop Saga, which covers the real life David Goliath story between Wall Street bigwigs and the millennial misfits that manipulated the stock market to save the GameStop brand. Do you remember this? When people were shorting GameStop, this was like... Yes. Was it the start of this year or the year prior? And then a bunch of people basically manipulated the stock market so that all the people shorting GameStop got absolutely hammered financially and everyone who invested in GameStop um, actually got a very nice payday. I freaking love that. That's a great story. I'm glad mm. it's been covered in a Netflix. I think a docu-series. So I'm very excited to watch this because there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff. And that ultimately, you know, ultimately the system is rigged <laughs> because even though they were using the, you know, the big wig Wall Street guys game to their own advantage, people were still putting blockages to these apps and investments and anyway, the whole thing. But that comes to Netflix as well as the Australian film, The Dry, which we covered 106. And the sequel is coming out soonish. Is it really? Well, they finished filming it. The Dry 2. Oh, I think it's. It's the dry strikes the rain. again. So oh, it's called it. the rain now. The I don't know what it's called, but it, it was set in Tasmania and it was very rainy. So maybe it's called the wet. Is Eric Banner in it? 
Yeah, he is. He's okay. like the through line character. Oh, it's like Knives the, Out. Yeah, he's like the detective character, yeah. <laughs> okay, very interesting. It did make a shitload of money, that film. It did. And people mostly liked it. Mm. That weren't you. <laughs> <laughs> people that weren't me really liked that film. And finally, coming to cinemas, you have On the Counts of Three, a bleak comedy that sees two friends, Val and Kevin, set out on the final day before fulfilling their suicide pact. Um... I'm hearing this is excellent, but you, you're going to have a really twisted sense of humor to really get this film, from what I'm hearing. Okay. But I always love a taboo film that's willing to go the extra mile, so we'll see how it plays out for them. Yeah, I love Death to 2022. <laughs> oh, God. If they make Death to 2022 on Netflix, I'm actually going to consider this on the counter-free plotline. That's a bad joke, but <laughs> I really am not looking forward to that film if it does exist. You also got the uh, Who Done It? See How They Run, which goes wide this week. 1972 documentary that looks inside the Aboriginal tent ambassador, Nigla R. Na, who is rescreening at Luna and Palace this week. And of course, you got Avatar, which is rescreening at Hoyts to prep for its sequel. I wrote a paper is... on the tent embassy. Oh. There you go. There you go. Did you watch this documentary? No. Well, now you have to go to the cinema to, to learn more about what you wrote. Yeah. I did watch a de- I did watch a documentary on it. So Oh, okay. Yeah. It's not the first Tent Embassy documentary. Mm. The write up implied it was. Very interesting. Luna. Maybe it was like a TV doco though. Like It's yeah. it said it was the only footage ever captured inside the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. That's what the write up said. Okay, so inside's interesting. So that might be the, that, the difference. Okay. I apologize, Luna. Yeah. You might be off the hook. But that's it. So there's not a lot of new films coming to cinema. It's really just on the counter for it. It's like, oh, and, and see who done, uh, see how they run, which of course is wide this week. Yeah. I swear there was more stuff. Oh, there actually, no, I'm confused. There is one other film playing at Hoyt's later this week. And that I feel like. good acting. No, I generally forgot. I was like, I swear there's more. And then I looked further down in my document. I was like, oh, yeah. But Jack, what are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke. We're watching Don't Worry, Darling. Darling, All of you wives. With you all the time. We men, we ask a lot. Can't you see? We ask for strength. <laughs> food at home. A house clean. With you all the time. And discretion above all else. Boys and their toys. At least we know they're getting work done. Welcome to the Victory Project. We're all here because we believe in the mission. What are we doing? Changing the world. What are we doing? Changing Changing the the world. world. That's right. What do you think they're really doing out there? What do you mean? The one thing they ask of us is to stay here. Where it's safe. Do you even know what the Victory Project actually is? Have you ever asked? Do you? Please. What's actually happening? Stop it, Alice. What if this place is dangerous? What if Stop it! No. Jack. It's okay. I'm curious to hear where she's going with this. A 1950s housewife, played by Florence Pugh, lives with her husband, Harry Styles, in a utopian community before discovering disturbing secrets. Yeah, we're going there. 
<laughs> Don't worry. Oh, it's time. It's time to dish out all the, the goss. Yeah, this will be good. Who hates who? So I expect you to present a compartmentalized. That was the word I was trying to say earlier. Uh, compartmentalized. Um, it comes full circle. Um, so 193 of the podcast. Of, of, this, of this drama. Because mm-hmm. I said, because Lou wants to watch this. And oh, cool. I was like, oh, yeah, it's cool. Like, there's this, apparently this massive drama with Olivia Wilde. And she was like, what happened? And I was like, oh, you should just ask Jake. Jake's got, like, the, <laughs> Jake, the full Jake's breakdown. Spreadsheets. I got no, like, she did something about, yeah, like, I remember you, but it would be interesting to really go through that mm. and then actually watch the film and judge the film just on the film's merits. Because exactly. I have a feeling there's a good mix between people that have rated this poorly because of all of that stuff. Mm. And because the few people I follow who have watched this film have rated it good to high. And obviously the score up until a week ago didn't really reflect good to high. So No, yeah, well, like we were saying before, the letterbox score, um, the average score jumped quite a bit in the last week or two since all, uh, I think more like... Not casual Which audiences, goes but like sh- the wide releases out there. It goes now. to show how pointless scoring is, but there you go, if we're going to I judge. Would, I wouldn't say it was pointless, but like th- there is that level of... You have to understand the letterbox crowd is a letterbox crowd. It's a very specific crowd of people generally attached to that. And, and Rotten Tomatoes is crap. Sucks. <laughs> um, I'm really looking forward to this. We haven't done a Florence Pugh film since Midsummer. No, it's been a hot bloody minute since... And we, we haven't done a Chris Pine film. God knows how long. Wonder Woman Wonder- 1984. Yeah, Wonder Woman 1984. And we did Olivia Wilde's uh, Booksmart in the first year of the show. There you go. Which we liked a lot. Yeah, and I really like Chris Pine, so... Um, I can't wait to see Harry Styles' performance. I'm just... I can't wait, because I know it's going to be pretty not great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just... It's I'm ready to be entertained by it. You know, I'll dive more into maybe next week on the show when we just talk about all these actors rather than the film. <laughs> just turns into an Entertainment Tonight segment. But um, he must be, he must be like, getting a bit of fatigue, because he, he jumped off the set of this... And then just went straight touring. Well, Harry Styles. Yeah. Like, he's just doing everything right now. I mean, to be fair, Florence Pugh shot Little Women and Midsommar in the same week. Yeah. <laughs> People be working. Yeah. And you say the Joy's probably going to need 10 years of sleep after the next seven films she's making next week. <laughs> it's a valid, you raise after, a valid point. Yeah. So, I don't know what he would be complaining about. I'm excited. And I'm going to try and watch the too. other one, too. So, maybe I'll go to the cinema twice in a week. Oh. <laughs> Oh. See how we how they run. What's really funny, I was looking at that. This is their first major feature. They had a 40-minute feature, the director first, see how they run. Oh. And I'm like, how do you go from doing the third only third thing logged on on Letterboxd? How do you go from a short film to a 40-minute film to working with Sam Rockwell and Saoirse Ronan? Like, where's the, where's the uh, leak? Tarantino pulled it off. I know. He had a crazy cast off his short film what am i supposed to what am i supposed to do to start working with all these people uh you gotta be in the nose Zeke. this is very true living in perth wa doesn't help us it does at all. not it does not <laughs> but until then thank you for joining us for the cinema Sasha podcast i was zeke i was jake and we'll catch you next week with god i've just forgotten the name don't worry darling <laughs>